Welcome, everyone. I am Christopher, and this is Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain media. Joining me as usual is the most heavenly of bodies, Lydia. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> wow. <laughs> I uh, feel like an angel. <laughs> oh, you are an angel. You are an angel, Lydia. I've got the voice of an angel, not the body. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I always try to work in some sort of pun that's related to our film sure. in our op- in the, the opening line. And I tell you what, sometimes it can be a little difficult. <laughs> 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 I was say, or a little awkward, but <laughs> or, we'll run or with that. difficult. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> awesome. How have you been? Well, that pretty much sums it up well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> With good. a bit of a squeak. <laughs> That's pretty much how it's been, actually. So uh, how about yeah. yourself? Pretty decent? Pretty decent. Pretty decent. Everything's been going really well. I'm excited to sit down and uh, watch their film. And, I, you know, we'll... We'll see what we think when we get into it. We we may have uh, got uh, two in a row. Right. I, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, see. We'll, we will see. Absolutely. Before we take our before we take our break, I do want to mention something. Steve Sullen pointed out on our Facebook group when I was giving away the trivia to last month's movie, A Horror Express. I was telling you about one of the actors whose wife had recently passed away and wasn't too sure he wanted to do the film. I gave that, I credited that to Christopher Lee's wife had passed away. I had the actors wrong. It was Peter Cushing's wife that had passed away, and Lee talked him into doing the film. Uh, Christopher Lee's wife, I think, is actually still alive and well. So my apologies. Our apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It, you know, the information I was I was getting, or the, the, the web pages and the information I was getting was correct, but when I actually typed up my uh, pre-show notes, uh, I, I swapped actors. So my mistake. <laughs> well, we apologize and we're happy you're still with us. Yes. And thank you, Steve Solomon, for pointing it out. <laughs> thank you, Steve. <laughs> All right. Well, now we'll take a short break and then we'll get into this wonderful film. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up and giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack, from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Now available in all ebook formats on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Find more info at daikaijuattack.com, sdsullivan.com, and the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. All right, this month we watched the 1946 romantic fantasy, A Matter of Life and Death. It was released here in the United States as Stairway to Heaven. It was written, directed, and produced by Michael Powell and Eric Pressburger. And it starred David Niven and Kim Hunter as our couple fighting for their love. Good tagline. A couple fighting for their love. That is a good (laughs) tagline. That really is. Uh, This movie was filmed using a process called three-strip technicolor. Uh, You know, I looked this up and tried to make head or tails out of it, and it's a little bit more than I care to explain here. So if you're curious, look it up yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's worth noting the entire thing is not in in technicolor. uh, And we'll get to that later, but Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely an interesting process for this film. What, what I will say is that this uh, method was used quite a bit in the late 30s and into the 40s due to its less expensive nature. 
the true Technicolor had kind of fallen out of favor by from a lot of uh, studios uh, during the Great Depression and World War II because of its high cost in processing. So this was sort of a uh, less expensive way to get a color movie. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to read about. But yeah, they kind of go what I, the one website that I was looking on it went into really big detail, and I'm just like, uh, they used film. Right. Yeah, <laughs> three strips of it, no less. <laughs> yes. Uh, the entire film was shot this way, uh, but for the added effect for the scenes in the afterlife, the color was not fully processed, which gave it the pearly black and white appearance that we will discuss later on in, as we get into the, into the film. Talk a little bit about the actors of this film. David Niven is the first one I've got to mention. Oh. <laughs> uh, we uh, Have we not mentioned, do I not just drool all over poor David Niven? Uh, not literally, <laughs> but oh, I just, yeah, every movie I see him in, especially when he plays the second string guy, I just go, why? Why would you pick this other guy over David Niven? There's just no reason for it. I love David Niven. I just he is absolutely fantastic. Oh, he's beautiful. Uh, Academy Award winning actor, instantly recognizable as the perfect British gentleman. Oh, he is. He is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to try and keep my swooning to a minimum. Lydia's going to swoon. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> He began his career as several small roles in Hollywood films, including a non-speaking part in 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty, which starred, of course, Charles Lawton and Clark Gable. It was there that he was spotted by Samuel Golden of, I believe, like MGM, right, Samuel? Uh, they, he gave him a contract and kickstarted his career, and over the next four years, he appeared in no less than 19 films, including Prisoner of Azenda and Wuthering Heights, I and love. played opposite to the likes of Errol Flynn and Lawrence Olivier. I love the Prisoner of Azenda. I do not know whether or not it is out of copyright, but if you have not had the chance to see the Prisoner of Azenda, it is 100% where the story is just fantastic. So, I'm almost positive that's one of those movies that you bring up a lot. It is. I can't help it. It's, <laughs> that's why I had to mention it. Good. Well, and then he was in My Man Godfrey, which if you're not seeing My Man Godfrey, holy cow, you're missing out. I just, uh, I can't even, honestly, all of them that you could go through. He, he's just fantastic. There's nothing that he's not wonderful in. Niven uh, joined what became known as the Hollywood Raj, a group of British actors in Hollywood, which included Rex Harrison, Boris Karloff, Stan Laurel, Basil Rathbone, Ronald Coleman, Leslie Howard, and C. Aubrey Smith. Oh, everyone. Oh, such a great every one of them. Oh, yeah, gosh. Right <laughs> Sorry. I'm really working here. I'm trying. <laughs> it's failing, but I'm trying. <laughs> when World War II broke out, he returned to England to serve in the Army. But after his tour of duty was up, he returned to acting. Actually, I think he did some acting actually in the army. He did a couple like, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, uh, so, well, literally army films uh, while in the army. So I thought that was really cool. But he returned to public acting once his tour was up. Except this time he was mainly in starring roles and immediately became one of the most popular actors in Britain. Some recognizable roles for Mr. Niven that we haven't already mentioned would be of course, this month's film, A Matter of Life and Death, uh, he started Around the World in 80 Days, in the movie Separate Tables, which garnered him the, oh, no, this is interesting, in Separate Tables, he appeared for a full 16 minutes and won the Best Actor Award for it. <laughs> he's so brilliant. I love him. I, seriously, yeah. he's just so great. Uh, he also appeared in The Guns of Navarone and 1967's Casino Royale yes. and the film Murder by Death, which... Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorites. Murder by Death is is brilliant. If you haven't seen that and The Chief Detective, you are cheating yourself. You have to see those. Yeah, oh, absolutely. In 1974, while presenting at the 46th Academy Awards, a man streaked across the stage as Peter Niven was trying to introduce Elizabeth Taylor. Niven, with amazing calmness, quipped, isn't it fascinating to think that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings? Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's a terrific – if you can – it's very hard to find clips from the Academy Awards because they kind of keep that stuff uh, kind of hammered down. But if you can find that clip on YouTube, it is, just, it is hysterical. I have seen it probably in some sort of show that was actually produced by the Academy Awards. But it, it's amazing that the man – he is the perfect British gentleman, and when this happens, he never. It's, He's it's, unflappable. It's unflappable. He is Thank you. That is the word. Completely unflappable. He really. Oh gosh, he's brilliant. Oh, the other things. I sorry. I have to. I, I'm, I sorry. I'm sorry. I have to mention a couple of other things. He is Death on the Nile. Fantastic, brilliant Agatha Christie murder. Uh, he was in the Pink Panther. He was in um, hmm? Candle Shoe, which is Jodie Foster's essentially first movie. Definitely the first one that I'm aware of her being in. Um, and then, oh gosh, there was one more I wanted to mention. So, oh, I know what it was. I ran across this just as the first time I watched this movie, uh, I was on YouTube and there was a link to another movie called Bedtime Story. And so being curious, I clicked on it. And as soon as it opened, I recognized the opening lines and then I recognized more of the lines. It turns out Bedtime Story with David Niven is the original Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. Oh, interesting. Almost line for line. And you will never guess who plays Steve Martin's character in it. Marlon Brando. Nice. It is. Uh, I just, I'm sorry. This could be the David Niven show and I'd be totally happy. <laughs> but if you, everything I've seen him in has been a fantastic movie. I don't know if he just got lucky or if he just was brilliant with picking his scripts. But all right, I'm going to go back to actually talking about this movie. <laughs> okay. Well, let's leave Niven behind for a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Kim Hunter. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Kim Hunter began her career in the 1943 movie, The Seventh Victim, a film about a young woman played by Hunter that discovers an underground cult of des devil worshippers in a Greenwich village. Like you do. Like you do. I, it's always in some Greenwich village. It I is. Tell you. It always it is. Every time I find one. If, I'm a, if I ever go to England, I am not visiting Greenwich because it's almost guaranteed. <laughs> it's going to have devil worshippers. <laughs> exactly. Maybe her most famous role was one she recreated, recreated from the stage. In 1947, she appeared as Stella Kowalski on Broadway. And in 1951, she brought that character to the screen uh, in a film of the same name, of course, playing a, a, along with a Marlon Brando. And that, of course, won her a Best Supporting Actress Award from the Academy, as well as a Golden Globe. In A Streetcar Named Desire. Yes. And and it makes me want to yell, Stella, even though I've never... Stella! Ah, you do that way better than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. It's because my uh, natural... You know, people always confuse me for a young Marlon Brando. Yeah, well, that so. is. I, I, when I first met you, did confuse you for a young Marlon Brando, sort of. So you probably confused me with an old Marlon Brando. Well, <laughs> definitely with the Godfather. We'll put it there. <laughs> yeah. uh, Miss Hunter was blacklisted in nineteen in the nineteen fifties McCarthy communism and Hollywood scare. Unfortunately, 
Uh, once that subsided, though, she was able to find the work a little easier and appeared in many films and te- television roles. And it was, I, I have to tell you, I almost feel bad that this is what I know her best from, is from 1968, she donned the heavy makeup and starred opposite Roddy McDowell and Charlton Heston in The Planet of the Apes and two of its sequels it, as a sympathetic chimpanzee scientist, Zira. It's such an iconic movie, though. So she- It is a very iconic movie, but I almost feel bad that that's what I associate Kim Hunter with. I don't associate her with the Academy Award winning, you know, <laughs> streetcar name Desire or anything else. She has such a pretty face. She's really enjoyable to watch. And she really is a very good actress. I I, I feel like she holds up. I, I don't want to say passively. That sounds insulting. But I feel like she holds up against David Niven. And that's – I'm sorry. I said the, I said the name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel like she she does well against, let's say, opposite strong actors. Well, I'll, I'll even go so far as to say this: Peter uh, David Niven. I said I was going to say Peter Niven. <laughs> David Niven often plays. I mean, he is often the same guy. He is the perfect British gentleman, and that's <laughs> often what you see him in. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that was a little goggly, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even hear it. Oh, he is. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um, but Kim Hunter, I think, has a greater range in her the roles that she's played. So you could you could argue a little that maybe she's even the stronger of the two actors here. I honestly I can't say because I haven't seen her in much. But that's not to say that she's not an exceptional actress. It's just that mm-hmm. I haven't seen her in much. All right. I prefer men. So I have a tendency to, oh, there you, go. you know, I, I chase down to the <laughs> films. It's what I do. <laughs> um, not exclusively, but, you know, <laughs> but it is fair to say she is she is a good actress. And I I the only reason I'm reticent at all is just because I haven't seen enough to feel like I can gush. Gotcha. Well, the uh, two British filmmakers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, uh, known as The Archers, which was the name of their production company, made a series of films in the 1940s all the way through the 70s, mainly from original stories by Pressburger, with the script written by both Pressburger and Powell. Powell did most of the directing, while Pressburger did most of the work of the producer and also assisted with the editing, uh, especially with the way the music was used. And I think the music was used quite effectively. I just really liked a lot of the music that was in the film we're going to talk about today. So that, that, that is the work of Mr. Pressburger, I guess. The biggest compliment I can give him is I honestly didn't notice. It did not detract oh. from the film. And that is... No, I wouldn't say it detracted. It was no, no, only, it didn't. It, that's what I'm yeah. saying. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge compliment because there's so many movies where you notice the music and actually it becomes a hindrance to the story. And in this case, sure. this is not the case. No. Uh, they did often share a writer, director, producer credit for their films. I know if you didn't know if you noticed that while watching the credits for this yeah. one. Uh, and of course, the uh, the few films that they're best known is the uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943, this film from 1946, uh, the Black Narcissist from 1947, and the Red Shoes from 1948. But they did uh, they did actually go on to produce many other films and. Apparently, they did have a little bit of a falling out and got together back and forth. But off and on, they produced a lot of work together, even in going into the 70s. In 1981, Powell and Pressburger were recognized for their contributions to British cinema, 
with the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Academy Fellowship Award, which is the most prestigious award given by the BAFTA. Uh, there are many other fantastic actors in this film that I haven't gone into because they, as great of an actor as they, as, as I think they are in this movie, they not all of them went on to do a whole heck of a lot, with the exception of maybe there's a very young Richard Attenborough in this as quote unquote English airman. Yeah, a very notable part one. an English. Yeah, I think you know that's the, and interestingly the. The gentleman who plays the doctor, Robert Coot, does a really good job. I really enjoy him in this. And I think, you know, they used his part well and he did a great job. But yeah, you're right. I'm not a whole lot of things that I, I didn't recognize him from anything. I did not either. He was one of those actors where you think you recognize the voice. Mm -hmm. But you go through his filmography and think, I don't think I've seen that. And it could be that it just his works haven't made it to this side of the, of the, of the pond, you know, he was a British actor. Mm -hmm. And so most of his work may have been in Britain. Well, and, so and he was in the ghost. And this is mirror with uh, Rex Harrison. And uh, you know, he was in the 1948, three musketeers, things that, you know, you've seen, but then, mm -hmm. you know, he, but they weren't main title parts. So exactly. oh, he was Fritz. He was Fritz in the prisoner of Zenda. I missed oh, there you go. just this moment. Yet again, going to mention back the prisoners. <laughs> Watch that movie if you get a chance. I love Fritz. I love everybody in that movie. You just, oh gosh. And then in it, oh, I'm gonna, sorry, we're, we might have to see if that is out of copyright. And if it is, we are going to have to review that because it's a fantastic story. If it is, I doubt. I mentioned that's a little bit more too, well, there too popular two of, of a them. film. There's the, yeah, well, there's the Stuart Granger one that's in Color with Deborah Carr. And then there's the one that David Niven was in. Um, and anyway. Moving on, but you're right. We will investigate. There are a lot of people in this film that, you know, their names are familiar. Roger Livesey. Every time I see that name, I think I've seen him in something, but, you know, you're right. And then, you know, Richard Attenborough, I couldn't find him. I couldn't spot him. Both times I watched this, I couldn't figure out who he was. No, I have no idea. Me neither. He didn't look like he did in Jurassic Park, so. Well, let's get into a little bit of the plot of A Matter of Life and Death. This is a story of two worlds. And I was going to write down the whole. <laughs> <laughs> I, you can find it online. I saw it. But it basically says, I love the disclaimer in this. It says something to the, something to the effect of any resemblance to worlds currently in existence is a purely coincidence. Something like that. Yes. <laughs> and I, it was very cute. It was very kind of tongue in cheek. I really enjoyed that. It kind of, it's kind of sets the mood right away. Yes. The film itself, after this little uh, this little scroll, is a bit of an astronomy lesson uh, that gets it almost exactly opposite on a couple points. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it is the 1940s. We had not it been we had not been to space at all yet, much less landed on the moon as humanity. So that's worth noting. exactly. No, and in fact, I think the only thing that they really got wrong as they were talking about uh, all the areas without stars look like cloudy spots. I'm like, no, that's actually kind of the opposite. Right. It's actually the, you know, where there's nothing, they said. And like, no, we've actually now figured out that, that that's a lot of crud and you just can't see the stars through that. But, you know, they still had the, they made a, a fun little um, a jab at the one. Oh, look, a Nova. Someone must have been messing with the uranium atom. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not our world. Yes, oh my goodness. <laughs> and for the time period, that's totally appropriate. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Ah, those are called a globular cluster of stars. Rather fine. 
Down here in the right-hand corner, see that little chap rather like a Boy Scout's badge? It's a mass of gas expanding at thousands of cubic miles a minute. Here we are, we're getting nearer home. The moon, our moon, in the first quarter. And here's the Earth, our Earth, moving around in its place, part of the pattern, part of the universe. Reassuring, isn't it? It's night over Europe, the night of the 2nd of May, 1945. That point of fire is a burning city. It had a thousand bomber raid an hour ago. And here, rolling in over the Atlantic, is a real English fog. I hope all our aircraft got home safely. Even the big ships sound frightened. Listen to all the noises in the air. This was their final power. Well, we meet an American radio operator. This is uh, Kim Hunter playing June. And she makes contact with a dune pilot as his plane's going down. Uh, this is, of course, David Niven, Mr. Uh, Peter Carter. Peter is getting ready to bail out despite not having a parachute. And right off the bat, I mean, this is the opening scene of the movie, or the, at least with the, the actual actors. And this is probably one of the greatest scenes of, like, any movie I've ever seen. By that time, back I always hear, time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Andy Marvel, what a marvel. What's your name? Are you receiving me? Repeat, are you receiving me? Request your position. Come in, Lancaster. You seem like a nice girl. I can't give you my position. Instruments gone, crew gone too. All except Bob here, my sparks. He's dead. The rest all bailed out on my orders. Time 0335. You get that? Crew bailed out 0335. Station Warrenden, Bomber Group AAG for George. Send them a signal. Got that? Station Warrenden, Bomber Group A Apple G George. They'll be sorry about Bob. We all liked him. Hello, G George. Hello, G George. Are you all right? Are you going to try to land? Do you want to fix? Name's not G. George, it's P. Peter. Peter D. Carter. D's for David. Squadron leader Peter Carter. No, I'm not going to land. Undercarriage is gone. Inner port's on fire. I'm bailing out presently. I'm bailing out. Take a telegram. Got your message. Received your message. We can hear you. Telegram to my mother. Mrs. Michael Carter, 88 Hampstead Lane, London, Northwest. 88 Hampstead Lane, London. Tell her that I love her. You'll have to write this for me, but what I want her to know is that I love her very much. That I've never shown it to her, not really, but that I've loved her always, right up to the end. Give my love to my two sisters, too. Don't forget them. Received your message. We can hear you. Are you wounded? Repeat, are you wounded? Are you bailing out? What's your name? June. Yes, June, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. Hello, hello, Peter, do not understand. Hello, hello, Peter, can you hear me? Hello, June, don't be afraid, it's quite simple. We've had it, and I'd rather jump than fry. After the first thousand feet, what's the difference? I shan't know anything anyway. I say, I hope I haven't frightened you. 
No, I'm not frightened. Good girl. You Sparks, you said he was dead. Hasn't he got a shoot? Captain Ribbons, cannon shell. June, are you pretty? Not bad. I... Can you hear me as well as I hear you? Yes. You've got a good voice. You've got guts, too. It's funny, I've known dozens of girls. I've been in love with some of them, but an American girl whom I've never seen and who I never shall see will hear my last words. That's funny. It's rather sweet. June, if you're around when they pick me up, turn your head away. Perhaps we can do something, Peter. Let me report it. No, no one can help. Only you. Let me do this in my own way. I want to be alone with you, June. Where were you born? In Boston. Mass? Yes. That's a place to be born. History was made there. Are you in love with anybody? No, no, don't answer that. I could love a man like you, Peter. I love you, June. Your life and I'm leaving you. Where do you live? On the station? No, in a big country house about five miles from here. Lee Woodhouse. Old house? Yes, very old. Good, I'll be a ghost and come and see you. You're not frightened of ghosts, are you? It'll be awful if you were. I'm not frightened. What time will you be home? Well, I'm on duty till six. I have breakfast in the mess and then I have to cycle half an hour. I often go along the sands. This is such nonsense. No, it's not. It's the best sense I ever heard. I was lucky to get you, June. Can't be helped about the parachute. I'll have my wings suit anyway. Big white ones. I hope they haven't gone all modern. I'd hate to have a prop instead of wings. What do you think the next world's like? I got my own ideas. Peter. I think it starts where this one leaves off. Or where this one could leave off if we listen to Plato and Aristotle and Jesus. With all our little earthly problems solved, but with greater ones worth the solving. I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, June. Goodbye. Goodbye, June. Hello, G for George. Hello, G George. Hello, G George. But you're right, it's total, it's super, super effective. I'm sorry, I've been reading too many memes. But it is, it's extremely effective. You have these two people having a long-distance conversation via radio, the broken conversation. He is, you know, at death's door, and he, you know, he says, can you send a telegram, tell my mother that I love her very much, and I didn't always tell her, you know. And and then they get into this romantic moment where he, frankly, just starts hitting on her. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it. <laughs> what has he got to lose? He's gonna die. He knows. He says, "You know, my parachute's shot. I know I'm not gonna make it, but I'd, I'd rather jump than burn." I think is what he says. Yep, exactly. And there's a line in this that it's it's interesting because it's a serious moment, but you can tell he's just come to grips with it. He's just accepted it, and I and he says uh, he says something about having wings, and he says, "I hope they still have wings. I hope they haven't gone all modern. I'd hate to have a prop instead of wings." <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I missed it the first time. And then it fate and then, you know, they repeat that line of prop instead of wings a little bit later on. But uh right. but you know, it's very much the I feel like it's very much that era. I mean, you can almost stop the movie because I'm like, you know, okay, that's that's one of the best scenes you're ever gonna that's see. That's a short, absolutely. Yeah, you could totally see that. Well he goes he does he does go ahead and bail out. Uh, June is of course crushed. I, I I mean this is a man that as as she says in the film you know, Peter is a man she could love I mean, right from the start. He just like Lydia, as soon as she hears <laughs> his voice. Oh, I recognize David Niven's voice on a radio clip once. So, yes, uh-huh. I absolutely. <laughs> I called the radio station and said, is that clip David Niven? And they said, well, let me check. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, I could love a man like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, meanwhile, in heaven, Peter's radio man, Bob, who bought it a little earlier, uh, he's he's at the in the waiting room, effectively of the afterlife, waiting for waiting for Peter to show up. 
While he's waiting, we meet several men, all soldiers, of course, that arrive, French, British, and Americans, as they sign in and get sized for their wings. It is interesting, now that you said that, that now, and please, if you are of German descent listening to this, just bear in mind the era. But it is funny, you don't see any German soldiers coming. That is up. true. I just that realized true. that, as you said, you're French, German, and American. Um, definitely not a reflection on you know, the German people in general. (laughs) But but one thing I want to mention about this is the setup in this. And I think maybe we want to get a little bit further, you know, talking about this situation before we talk about the setting. But um, I I love the set during this section. No, I think this is a fantastic time to talk about it. It, It's just fantastic. First of all, this we should point out that up to this point, everything has been in color. But now that we're in the afterlife, now it's in black and white, which I thought was an interesting choice. You would think it would be the other way around. Well, what's funny about it, too, is I actually didn't notice. Both times I watched it, the the opening scenes are, especially with Peter and June, they're so dark. Um, definitely mm-hmm. the flames in the background are visibly red, but you kind of right. – and then there's a light in uh, whatever, you know, uh, whatever – Station. That's what I'm trying to say. That June. The tower. Yeah, the tower that June. That yeah, June the is tower. in. There's definitely red light in there, but you kind of don't notice it. And then once you go to this afterlife section, I didn't even notice that the color faded out. It just hadn't occurred to me that there was color in it at all up to this point. Well, uh, Bob sits there and waits, but you know Peter doesn't show up. He has a little discussion with uh, the the woman in charge. And, you know, she apparently kind of broke the rules a little bit and looked in the records and said that Peter should be showing up about a half an hour after Bob. But he he doesn't uh, he he never shows up. They don't quite understand it. But, you know, he doesn't want to Bob doesn't want to ruin anything or set any alarms off. So he goes ahead and signs in (laughs) without without Peter. I do like the fact that that the afterlife has a guest. Yeah, (laughs) you have to log in here. But I do. uh, There's a, a part where. They uh, they say, oh, no, you know, if, if he didn't, there's never been an error, you know, in the last 1,000 years, there's not been a problem. And if somebody weren't to show up, then all the alarms would go off and, you know, down in the records office. And they look down through this hole. And, and mm-hmm. the way that they do this, like kind of looking down, you can't really see what they're looking at. But then they do a reverse shot where they're where it shoots up through the hole. And there are all these holes, but they're huge. And it's just I, the scope of it is phenomenal it's it's something that we would take for granted now with the cinematography we have now but in this era it's they're looking down through one of you know what you perceive as being hundreds of these kind of windows down toward this absolutely enormous records office it's 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 impossible to explain but it's actually very uh it's it's very taking for lack of a better phrase very much you know and it's very good. And I swear there's actually, it's not a static, like, matte shot. I swear you see movement in almost all the holes. You and you do. see movement down in the record, uh, the record uh, center or whatever. So it's looking up. Yeah. It, it's a remarkable yeah. shot. No, it's really good. A really great special effect, however they however they did it, which I'm sure was just a lot of overlays and mats mm-hmm. and whatever. But it, it worked really well. It really, well. really did. Well, back on Earth, Peter awakes on a beach and assumes that this is the afterlife. Uh, it probably helps that the weather is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> the beach is idyllic. And there is a young, naked shepherd boy playing a flute. That's what I expect <laughs> to see in heaven. No. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> but no, I, yeah, that's not something you would typically expect to see in a civilized country. 
So <laughs> no, no, a little, little odd. A little unusual. Yes, very much. But I love it too. He says, uh, "There's, you know, there's a dog sitting on the dune," and he says, "Oh, dogs! I hope they'd have dogs." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that so much. <laughs> Yeah, he was so pleased. Oh, thank but goodness. But it is worth there's, noting. There's dogs in- exactly. It's definitely worth noting that when he wakes up, all of the the shot goes into a very vibrant color. You can definitely tell going between the afterlife and where he is, it goes from black and white to color. And that's when I really noticed it. I didn't even notice that, you know, it wasn't in in color before. And it's almost like, and I love it because it's almost like he wakes up and it's like a whole brand new Oh wow, you know, I I this whole time I've been expecting to die, but this is wonderful. You know, and then exactly. and then he wakes up and and you know, he figures he's in the afterlife and he's looking around and thinking, "Oh, it's so beautiful, it's so amazing." Well, yeah, especially if you if you cut out the 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 scenes in the afterlife. If you just went from the the very red and black yeah. colored and and you know, the damaged aircraft, yeah. uh, the dead and, man and, and, in the back of it and the dead yeah. man, yeah, and and then cut right to this beautiful blue and and green yeah. and 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 tan beach. I mean, it's it's a fantastic contrast shift. I mean, yeah, color absolutely. contrast, yeah, very much. I mean, color plays a big part, I think, in this I film. At least, does. certainly early. It on. certainly helps mm-hmm. tell the story. That's for sure. Well, Peter realizes that he's indeed still alive uh, when the young shepherd boy looks at him like he's crazy and kind of explains, "Oh, what do you what do you mean you're new here?" You're like. New to, new to the aerodrome, and at that moment, you know, the, the, the plane, plane zooms overhead. Over, yep. And he says, where are we? Yeah. And he says, we're in Lee Wood, which just coincidentally happens to be where June lived, which he found out on the radio the night before. That's right. Uh, the young boy points to a path uh, down on the beach that will take him right to the house that, that June mentioned in their conversation. And it just so happens there's a bicyclist on that path. And who is it? Well, it must be one of those Yank girls. So... <laughs> Gee, I wonder what could be happening could next. Possibly be. And <laughs> Peter be. runs down, and you know, he. I love this moment though, because she said, you know, he says, "Hey there," and, and she says, "Yes." You know what? What do you want? And he said, and he realizes, and I think it must be because of her voice, but you know, oh, absolutely, June. Mm-hmm. And and then I love her reaction, the reaction shot on this, and this is where I agree with you. She is a very good actress because oh, she doesn't. I don't think she even has a line at this point. It just, but no, she does. It's all in her yep, face. Her reaction, and she almost drops her bicycle. But I love that moment between them. Ah, oh, it's so good. Where he kind of he starts toward her. That's the only way to put it. I I, I need to get all uh, writerish here. He starts toward her in a moment of passion. But as she shifts, <laughs> the bicycle starts to fall. He reaches his hand out, and they grasp it together. Their fingers touching. It's so it's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know they look each other in the face. And I think at that moment he smooches her, which is. A very romantic word, smooches. Oh yes, they fall instantly in love. They realize who each other are without, you know, you're June, and the the, the beautiful the look on her it's face really when she goes like, "How do you know my name?" To oh my, oh my god, it's Pete, it's you. Oh yeah, yeah. I recognize that voice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the afterlife, uh, we discover that Conductor Seventy One uh, simply lost Peter in the fog. 91,716 invoiced, 91,715 checked in. Conductor 71? Madame, it, it could have happened to anybody. How did it happen? Everything was calculated except for the accursed fog. The pilot jumped, he got lost in the fog. I missed him. 
19 hours and 50 minutes have elapsed. Don't you know that any slip must be reported immediately? I lost my head. Not long in the service. I joined in the so-called second germinal of the so-called glorious French Revolution. I see. Natural death. I lost my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, the woman in charge orders uh, Conductor 71 to go to Earth and explain to Peter what happened, explain the mistake, and see if you can get him to just, you know, come on back and uh, get things all corrected. So 71 does. He goes to Earth, and he, he appears, and, of course, he appears in the, in the, in the bright color, and he, makes this fa- he has this fantastic line as he looks around. He's like, Ah, one is starved for Technicolor up there. <laughs> I love that. I actually wrote down that line too. And he, and you know, this is a good example again of of how they use tech. They use the color to signify when you're going between these mm-hmm. two places. And I, I don't want to explain too early on my philosophy or my my theory behind why they choose chose to do the afterlife. Okay, well, let's, let's so, save that oh. to like your final thoughts then. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, 71 finds Peter in June, adjoining an evening in the woods. Uh, 71 stops time so he can chat with Peter and tries to convince Peter to return to him to the afterlife. Peter, of course, refuses because now he's in love. He was ready to go before, but now because of these 20 hours, in his 20 hours time, he's fallen in love, madly in love with June. And blames, he tells like, hey, it's your fault that I'm, that I've had this time and now I'm in love. So you have to figure it out. Well, 71 says, no, it, it, it's the law. And so Peter insists that they, he files, he should be allowed to file an appeal. 71 uh, says, you know, this hasn't been done before, but you know, he's going to have to leave them and go and get instructions. And then um, he'll, he'll be back in, with an answer. Well, Peter tries to explain to June what went on, but of course the, she, doesn't uh, exactly believe him, and she doesn't even really care. I mean, he's trying to sort of rationalize it to himself, it, even like going, well, wait, I mean, why am I alive? I jumped out of a plane without a parachute. And she's like, I don't care. You're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and know. he makes some comments like, no, but there, there was this, this messenger, and he says that, you know, it was their mistake, and he, he lost me. And they're like, well, too, bad luck for them, good luck for me. <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, he has a, some sort of a hack, uh, some sort of an attack, or some sort of a severe migraine, which causes his uh, actually causes his sight to go a bit wonky, uh, which is the first sign of um, a, a larger uh, plot point. That well, now we now meet Doctor Frank Reeves. Now he is uh, spying on the his little village with some sort of periscope ap- apparatus. Uh, what they call it? A um, oh, I should have wrote it down. Dr. Reeves' residence. Oh, good morning, Miss June. Yes, isn't it? The doctor's up in his thing, you know, his camera obscura. He's got his new lens from the shop this morning, and it makes a lovely picture. He's taken the big white garden table to project on. You'll be glad you're coming over. He's showing it to the dogs now. Ah, nice day. Hmm, Mrs. Bidwell's duck's out too early. She'll lose all the eggs if she's not careful. Ah, the start of the cycling season. There's a hefty young girl. Time Mrs. Tucker went to get our rations. There she is. Oh, the vicar and his sister. Not coming here, I hope. No, good. Quite a cure at the butcher's. Must have some offal. 
Wonderful how the kids love playing in the splash. Just the same in my day. Old Mary looking quite skittish. Sally Allgood getting herself dated up. Ah, here's June. Here she comes. She walks in beauty like the night. Only she's cycling and the sun is out. Nice girl. Worth a hatful of ambassadors in Lee Wood anyway. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Detailed, yeah. <laughs> well, June visits and asks Frank to look into Peter's medical case. Uh, apparently he's, as she puts it, what he's forgotten about uh, neurology could be could fit in a thimble. Yeah, apparently he's a very brilliant mind, a very brilliant doctor. Well, he agrees to take the case. So later that day, Frank motorcycles his way over to the officers' club, uh, nearly wrecking as he does, uh, playing a playing with a little, uh, being a little hot dog with a couple guys in a jeep. And Frank meets up with June and Peter. Uh, we discover Peter is a bit of a poet. He's apparently even published. Frank says he doesn't have a whole lot of modern work in his library, but Peter's there. And he begins his examination with a series of questions, uh, including, uh, I love his, um, how he tests Peter's sight. Yeah, okay, <laughs> just sit right still, look straight forward to what do you see? Oh, the redhead with the legs. <laughs> it, All right, now don't right, move your Oh, this, this is going to be easy. <laughs> I love that. This is going to be easy. <laughs> I really like that after, afterwards, he, you know, uh, June's like, oh, well, if you're done staring at the you know, at the girl, and Peter Lang leans over. To be honest, her knees are a little knock. Her, her legs are a little knock kneed. Yeah, she is a little <laughs> bit knock kneed. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. man. Well, Frank makes some spot on assumptions about uh, Peter's situation, and then he also learns of Peter's heavenly messenger and his requests of an appeal. Uh, so he decides to put Peter up in his house to study him further, and uh, because he, well, never mind, I won't go into that now. <clears throat> I feel like my notes are a little scattered uh, this week. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's this is another one of those films that I actually found myself enjoying too much, and so my notes aren't quite as detailed as I'd well, like. Well, honestly, I'm being really, yeah, I'm being really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, it's, it's a little bit unusual for both of mm -hmm. us. Well, how I'm explaining it and how it actually transpires are very, are two very different things. I'm making it sound very dry and, you know, and then this happened and this happened and I, this happened. And it's really not, there is so much, <laughs> I, I said color plays a part, but color most metaphorically and physically <laughs> plays a part in this film. Everything is done so well. And honestly, the way that it's, it is. The way that it's filmed, it's not clumsy at all. Everything's very carefully thought through. You yes, have, the dialogue. you know, fades, which it is. It, you have fades that, that include the sound, you know, that include, uh, this is a great example. When it fades to the doctor's house, you can hear some, you know, kind of pocking, some like, you know, kind of walking and <laughs> I'm horrible at onomatopoeias, but, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it shows Peter asleep in the midst of hundreds of books that are stacked up all around him. And as it pans very slowly around him, you can see through a window that the doctor and June are playing mm. ping pong, but they incorporate that sound long before you understand what's going on. And, and I think that's just one example of how this movie actually keeps your, it keeps your attention very well. It's not awkward and it's not jumbled. It's very carefully thought through the entire way. 
and that keeps it very mm-hmm, very much. Yeah, I believe there's actually a piano piece. Someone's uh, plunking on a piano with this very, very low and deep, dong, 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 dong. But you don't think of much of it until the scene kind of fades from one, and that turns into the kind of a more higher pitch, the dunk, 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 dunk of the ping pong ball. So it all time, yeah. it all comes together really yeah. well. It does. It's very, very careful. Yeah. <laughs> lack of a better way to put it. Well, Frank is pretty sure he knows what is wrong with Peter. He's not willing to actually come out and say it just yet, but he, he, he's sure Peter is having some very highly organized hallucinations, and he believes that the heavenly messenger, uh, the appeal, all of it, is sort of Peter's brain manifesting the physical damage that it's suffering from. Conductor 71 does make a return. Uh, he freezes June and Frank mid-table tennis game, including a, a floating ping-pong ball. Which is, a, again, a really good effect. It's very solid. And it's funny, it's the first time I watch it. You probably have the same experience. You're watching along, and all of a sudden, the sound cuts out, and everything stops moving. And you go, oh, boo, it's messed up. Now I have to go back and figure it out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, figure out why it's frozen. But it just stops, and it leaves it there for a couple, just enough mm-hmm. to get your attention and be like, for everybody in the entire theater in 1946 to go, oh, my God, the, the right. film is messed up. And then... It, it cuts over to Peter and he's. Uh, but with the, uh, on the uh, table tennis game, I think it makes it stand out even more when it freezes. You're so like, Whoa, what, wait, what, what happened is because prior to that, the camera is very active. They make a point. They, mm-hmm. they make it a really point is. of follow the cameras following the ball back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then there's some dialogue. And then we're playing tennis, and they're really active. And then you know she she hits the the ball, and he oh he dives for it. I mean it's a very active moment. And then suddenly it just stops. Uh, very yeah. purposefully, I, I think. Very much. Well, seventy one. Going back to uh, seventy one, and Peter are discussing. Uh, seventy one tells him that the appeal has been allowed. Uh, bad news, unfortunately, is that the prosecutor is Abraham Farland. He's the first U.S. colonist killed by a British bullet in the American Revolution. He is not a fan but of I, the British people. <laughs> no. I lo- but I do love the introduction to this, too, where he comes back and he says, oh, you like to play chess. Oh, you know, come, come, you know, he's trying to, and, you know, he's like telling him all this fun stuff about the afterlife. And then. Uh, and Peter says, oh, you have good news for me. And he says, what do you mean? And he says, well, you wouldn't be trying to trick me into coming back with you if you didn't have good news for me. <laughs> uh, and, it, you know, again, this is a very intelligent person. And, and they comment on it several times throughout the film. This isn't just some some silly guy that, you know, is just like walking around acting crazy. He's very intelligent and he's very aware of what's yeah, going absolutely. on around him. But he's also now aware that he has a, a major stumbling block to being able to stay with right. you. Peter has to choose his defense lawyer. Anyone in, in, in time that has ever been on Earth that is now in the afterlife, he can choose from, but he has to make the decision. So Frank, uh, or excuse me, uh, Peter tells you know Frank in June of this, of this visit, again, another attack, another terrible headache. Um, so Frank, sensing the urgency in all this, goes to the hospital to beg a surgeon friend of his that they have to operate that night. That is an incredibly important. Are you sure of your diagnosis? Certain. I discovered the missing fact. He had slight concussion two years ago with no after effects. X-ray is inconclusive. You've seen the ocular reports. You know all about these highly organized hallucinations coupled with a sense of smell. Everything points to arachnoid adhesions involving the olfactory nerve in the brain. 
It's a tricky operation, but I've never seen one. I have several at the Hospital de la Pitié in Paris. I've made some notes. I wonder if the surgeon can see them. Sure, it'll be Dr. Lysa. He's a very fine neurosurgeon. Lysa, a good man. But I don't see how we can manage tonight. There's no crisis in such a thing. Any day will do. No, it won't. And I'll tell you why I think it won't and why there is a crisis. I'm afraid of his brain being permanently affected. Insanity? Yes. Why? Because his trial is fixed for tonight and he hasn't found anyone to defend him yet. He spends all his time in my library or when talks with me and the girl. He only sleeps when I drug him. The boy has a fine mind, but it's overtaxed. That's the trouble. It's too good a mind. A weak mind isn't strong enough to hurt itself. Stupidity has saved many a man from going mad. <laughs> yes, you're right there. And he's had several talks with this heavenly messenger. Hallucinations, of course, but you never saw such an imagination. I've been taking tips on the other world, laws, system, architecture. Here's the interesting point. He never steps outside the limits of his own imagination. I don't quite get you. Nothing he invents is entirely fantastic. It's invention, but logical invention. And the keystone to his invention is that the trial takes place tonight. He must win or lose his case tonight, and that's why I think we ought to operate tonight. It's no use shaking your head, and that's why I think we ought to find a counsel to save him from losing his case, or we may lose him. And that is about an hour in to an hour and 44 minute uh, movie. And that is where I want to stop because I, from here on, it, it is some really great, great scenes. But it is a lot of talky-talky. It's really hard to make. Yes, it is a lot of talking moving forward. But I will tell you, I this movie had me in tears at the end. Yeah, sure. Um, and that, and yes, I cry in a lot of movies, but they have to be mm-hmm. really good. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to mention, and, and since you kind of let the, a little bit of the, of the ripening of the plot become apparent, you know, you, you have these two very separate ideas. You know, you have this, you have this doctor who thinks that Peter is suffering from these hallucinations due to a brain injury. And meanwhile, you have Peter who is seeing all of this as, you know, his, recall or his call to the afterlife and, you know, fighting against that. And it's interesting that no matter which way you look at it, they chose to do that, either that really dangerous scenario of his having, you know, a brain injury or his going to the afterlife as being in the black and white, where the color is everything that he wants. So it's interesting, you know, regardless of it being, you know, happy and perfect in the afterlife, what what to him is heaven is being able to stay on earth with June. And that's, I think, why they chose to make that the color portion is because whatever your ideal is or whatever it is that you're passionate about or seeking, you know, whatever you really want to find ultimately is going to be that more bright, more brilliant, more colorful, you know, scenery, right. I guess. Well, I think. An awkward <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing to do, the film is really good about. There's only really the one scene. The one scene with Bob that doesn't have Peter in the afterlife is the only scene that you could use to argue to say, no, this the whole afterlife thing is really happening, mm-hmm. and the brain is the, the the brain injury is just something that also that is happening. Right. But but except for that scene, you could argue that no, this is all a hallucination in Peter's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you want to argue, you could argue that well, maybe he just dreamed that as well. 
Exactly. And then I think there was also, I mean, it's also a lot of people, there's many people that they say only dream in black and white. So that's also where I wonder if that's why the afterlife was in black and white versus color. Because it it had that that little bit more of a doubt whether that is really something that is happening or was that really something in, you know, Peter's hallucinations. Yeah. And it's interesting. I I think that's one question that you can continue to argue even after the end of this movie. So, oh, absolutely. You know, I don't think that that's spoiling anything to say this really is, you can look at it as an argument of one against the other. Definitely, mm-hmm. it's a, a very, very strong romantic movie. But it's also, you know, has this interesting kind of psychology, I want to say psychological twist, not in a suspenseful way. Well, in a suspenseful way, not in a thriller you know, horror movie kind of way, but it definitely does have that psychological edge to it that I, you know, that you tend to see more with Hitchcock and that kind of Mm thing. Okay. No. And, and yeah, I don't think you're giving anything away by saying it is a happy ending folks. (laughs) (laughs) Darn well better be. (laughs) Oh, heck yeah. I I mean, I ended it in tears, but that doesn't mean I was happy. (laughs) It wasn't happy. No, it's really good with some absolutely fantastic performances by 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 everyone involved. I'm sure whoever Rich in Attenborough was, I'm sure he was brilliant too. Oh, I'm confident. <laughs> yeah, if only I knew which one he was. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I'd be uh, you, know, you know extolling his praises. Mm. Oh, and I tell you what, this is a movie of voices. I mean, certainly you got you got David oh, Niven gosh. with uh-huh. a fantastic voice. Uh-huh. Um, you got the actor that played uh, the the Dr. Reeves Frank again. Tremendous voice, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the prosecuting uh, attorney. Oh gosh! Oh, I just placed him. I was trying so hard to figure out who he was, and now I have to double check. Remind me. What that was a uh, Richard Massey, wasn't it? Was it Massey? Was it Richard Massey? Hold on, I got to find out because I think that was the bad guy in um, Unconquered with Gary Cooper and Paulette Goddard. But now I have to check. Keep going. <laughs> No, no, I'm going to wait for you because I, I should have. Raymond Abraham Massey, Farland. sorry. Let me see. Because if he, oh, this is him. This is him. Even his photo from 1983. He played the bad guy in Unconquered with Gary Cooper and Paulette Goddard. Fantastic movie. And he mm. was Black Michael in The Prisoner of Zenda. Let's bring that up one oh more time. Gosh. Oh, my God. Oh bring it around. But that was the 1937 one. You know, let's just scratch this film. Let's go find let's Prisoner get of Zenda. It. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was. He was the uh, he was the the bad guy in uh, Unconquered. Oh, oh, very good. I love it. So yeah, good. Raymond Massey. But again, another just voice. I mean, literally, this is a movie you could close your eyes and just listen to these people talk. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It, <laughs> it is. I it is just agree. ear candy. No, I have it wrong. It wasn't Unconquered. But keep going. Okay. <laughs> that was a different guy, but it was also fantastic. It was Black okay. Michael. I was thinking of. Ah, uh, gotcha. No, but I I don't know if I have anything else to say. I think it's really good. It's it, like I like you were saying. There's a little psychological bend to it. Uh, there's the question of you know is it real or isn't, and and in the end, it doesn't matter. It's really yeah, and it is. It's a question, and it's not a question that the that the movie tries to answer for you. It's more a question that the movie tries to pose to you. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Very much. Yeah. Uh, should we just go ahead and go into our, to go into some ratings? I think I have a pretty good idea where we're both going to fall, but let's, uh, let's make right it official. Ahead. Yeah, go for it. All right. I, I'm going to give this one a five. I, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. What? I mean, I, You're seriously? Kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I watched it the first time. I always like to try to watch one all the way through, you know, just, just watch it. And then I like, then I, I was looking forward to watching it again so I can sit there and, and, <laughs> and take my notes. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is the one too. I'll, I'll definitely sit and watch it a third or, or, or fourth time. Cause I definitely want to sit down and, and watch this with, with, with my wife. It's mm-hmm. just, it's that good of a movie. It is. It really, I mean, it, this is a, a great romantic movie. This is just, a, this is a great romantic movie. The followers to it. So I'm going to give it five as well. I am going to say it's a little heavy. Uh, I expected to go back and watch it again within a couple of days. And actually it took me a little time to, uh, to get back to where I could handle the heavy again. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. it, it, there's even from the beginning scene, which is extremely intense. I mean, it's, you know, we've already spoiled it for you. He doesn't die in the plane crash. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, from that moment, it's it's very intense and very emotional. And this entire time, you're very emotionally invested in these people. And it, and for that reason alone, I feel like it's it's a heavy movie to watch. And you know, it's not one of those that you can't watch it over and over again like you can Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or uh, Bedtime Story. You mm-hmm. know, because it's funny and it's lighthearted and it's romantic, but it's also not so much that you need to have a breather between it. This this one you kind of need a little bit of a breather between, but absolutely, it's worth a watch, one hundred percent. Okay, very good. So there we did it. We, we were wondering if, you know, last month we were wondering if we could uh, do two in a row, and, and, and we did. I think we I kind we of, lucky. yeah, well, I think we sort of stacked the deck a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I told you I love David Niven. That was easy to, easy to pick, and I, I don't think I could fathom giving any movie with David Niven in it less than a four because he just makes a movie in so many cases. He but, truly does. Yeah. And then you, you you throw in the other actors that are that are in this and the performances that they give and it's it's yeah it, it's a no brainer. It really is a very good movie. So I think that is going to do it for us, unless there is anything else. Not for me. I'm uh I, I'm thinking I might go watch The Prisoner's End after that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to have to finally look oh, this this movie goodness. up. And there are two of them, so be careful. Okay. I'll make sure. I'll make sure and find the one with. With David Niven. It's worth it. And honestly, if you do watch that one, the main guy in it is not David Niven. You might be surprised to know. Uh, but I enjoy him as much as well. He's Fantastic. Really They're all, the whole cast in that is just phenomenal. Well, to all our listeners, I want to thank you for continuing to download Orphan Entertainment. Please visit our homepage at orphanentertainment.com to see all the other fantastic uh, movies and radio and television shows that we have covered. You can subscribe through iTunes where you can give us a rating and leave a comment. And you can use the Stitcher radio app from any smartphone, tablet, or desktop computer. If you have any feedback or suggestions, send an email or mp3 to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. And, of course, join our Facebook group. Uh, Just go to Facebook and search Orphan Entertainment. And that is usually the best way, like Stephen D. Sullivan uh, found out, to (laughs) to give any feedback or, in in that case, correct our mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, please. (laughs) But I think that is going to do it. Lydia, thanks very much. This was a a, a blast talking with you. It was a fun film to watch, and it was a lot of fun to discuss. I agree. Absolutely. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.